welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. So welcome to part two of my conversation with Oscar Trimboli. Oscar's an author of, of a book called How to Listen, Discover the Hidden Key to Better Communication, which is a comprehensive book about listening in the workplace. He also hosts the Apple Award-winning podcast called Deep Listening, and he's a sought-after keynote speaker, so I'm really thrilled that he agreed to speak with us here. And as I said in the introduction to part one, listening somehow seems to be the forgotten skill or the taken-for-granted skill. You know, we're probably all taught how to speak and how to defend our work, particularly in academia, but not so much how to listen. And yet I think listening is one of the most important skills we can bring to our work, not just as leaders and supervisors and educators, but also as colleagues and friends. I'd also said in that last intro that the chat with Oscar connected with the last podcast in 2021 with Michael Bungay-Stanya, the one about being curious and taming our advice monsters. I should have said that the conversation with Michael was the last conversation podcast, as we also had two later related work podcasts, one following up on the conversation with Michael about how to ask good questions, and that was presenting his his seven different uh, coach-like questions to ask. So asking good questions relies on being able to listen deeply, I think, as a precondition. So in part one of our conversation, um, Oscar talked about why listening is so important and the cost of not listening and listening to be open to other ideas and so we can ask great questions. I'm curious about what your reflections were from listening to that conversation and what you might have noticed about your own listening in the meantime. So here today we pick up on the conversation with Oscar in part two and I left off part one asking him to tell us about the five levels of listening that he mentioned. So here he walks through each of those levels and it's packed with lots of really practical actionable strategies for how we can all learn to listen more deeply. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Oscar. Um, Mm. You've mentioned your five levels a few times. Would you like to just walk us through those five levels? What they are? Yeah, I'll I'll just give you the the taxonomy first and then we'll we'll decompose them ever Mm -hmm. so slightly as we go along. So the the model's foundational. Think of it as a base of a pyramid with an apex and you need to, most of the work needs to be done at the base level. The wider the the base, the higher the apex is, you know, if you really do the foundational work. So mm-hmm. at level, if you try and jump levels, you'll you'll basically linguistically confuse the people you're working with because they won't really understand where your questions are coming from. So level one is listening to yourself. Level two is listening to the content. Level three, listening for the context. At this part of the model, we move from listening to things to listening for things. So level three, listening for context. Level four, listening for unsaid. And then level five, listening for meaning. And the meaning you're listening for is actually their meaning. 
or shared meaning, not necessarily what it means for you as the listener. So, so at level one, most people think that good listening starts by focusing on the speaker. That's handy, but it's not sustainable. So a lot of us turn up to conversations with our listening battery really drained. And what we need to do is just get into a very simple ritual of managing our electronic notifications, whether that's your um, connected watch, whether that's your phone, whether that's your handy, whether that's your cell phone, whichever nationality you're part (laughs) of. And so manage the electronic notifications unless you're in a a high production medical environment or these kinds of where you're on call. Um, If you are in those environments, then just announce to the people you're on call and you may have to step away and, and do that. The second thing is hydrate. Just drink water before you go into any of these conversations because most people in Western workplaces are dehydrated by lunchtime. Now, the brain, 5% of the body mass, but it consumes 26% of blood sugars, and particularly for complex cognitive tasks that happen in working memory in the prefrontal cortex, which the listening is, um, hydration is critical. And then the, the third thing is just take three deep breaths before you get into a conversation. These three th- rituals are really, 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 really simple to say and very, 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 very difficult to practice and sustain. Mm. Mm. And in our research from those 20,000 people that we talk about who've given us feedback, we, one of the questions we've asked is, what are the behaviours of poor listening? And, and they always talk about eye contact. They always talk about distraction with laptops, cell phones, and, and people they know that are just gazing away. Now, now also be careful. Don't overread into those. So I work with some people who... Um, are on a range on uh, a neuro spectrum and some people listen very intently by staring at their shoes. Now, they should declare that to the room, otherwise people go, they're just not interested. But this is a subset of the neural spectrum and they struggle to stay in the moment and not distracted with significant visual stimulation so Mm. they've realized okay if if i take my gaze away and most people look down in their shoes or in look down at the table but they don't maintain eye contact uh, people get very confused by that so the the clients i've worked with they bring me in and they say oh look i've got terrible feedback about my listening you're the listening guy watch me in a meeting and so i'll I'll pull them out after the meeting's over and, and i'll say did you notice where your eye contact was during the meeting? Yeah, yeah, it was on the ground. That's where I concentrate the best. I said, if I was to ask your team what that meant, what do you think they'd say? They go, oh, never really thought about it, but it's the best way for me to concentrate and focus on their ideas. So now she says to people she meets, her team know this, she says, I really want you to know that what you say matters. And the way I concentrate the best is not by focusing on you visually, but I am intently listening to your ideas. So if my gaze moves away for an extended period of time, I am listening to you. Don't be dis- distracted. And it's completely transformed the feedback that the team's given her, the yeah. way they engage with the idea. So not enough of us communicate about how we communicate. Mm. So, so, so level one 
is just being present to the moment. So rather than having a radio station playing that's broadcasting the last meeting in your head or the next most important meeting you're going to go to after this, you just have to become present to this moment. And remember those numbers again. You will get distracted. You can listen at 400 words per minute and they're not speaking fast enough. So just have a few techniques. Touch the glass of water that you bring into the meeting or the bottle of water you bring into the meeting. Use a mental reset to look at the color of the speaker's eyes when you get distracted to just bring you back into the moment. So that's level one. Now pause, Geraldine. Any questions before we advance to level two? No, it's just a comment because I have a lovely colleague who knits in meetings. And they're actually very good. I hadn't sort of appreciated this. They're actually very good at cueing us in, and especially when they come to a new group of people and say, this is, you know, I'm knitting but I'm listening and this is how I need to concentrate. Um, Yeah, so that thing about just, again, that comes back to that self-awareness and then actually communicating it because people can't read your mind and thinking about how people perceive your listening skills as well that, and that we all listen in different ways or or we be listeners in different ways. Yeah. Is, um, and the, at level one, if you want a question to use to get you into the meeting, At the beginning of the meeting, simply, if this is in a one-on-one context, but it can be adapted to group settings as well, simply ask this question, what would make this a great meeting for you? Mm. So this is doing a few things. It's cueing the speaker to collect their thoughts, Mm. not about what they're going to say, but how we're going to dialogue together. It's what you said about communicating, about communicating. Yeah. In that moment, they'll go, oh, my goodness, I've never been asked that before. What a lovely question. Um, So that could be about how do we allocate our time together? Um, You know, if we've got three things on the agenda, one might take up 80% and the other two 20%. The second thing that will prompt in all likelihood is for the speaker to ask you the question in reverse. So what will make it a great meeting for you, Geraldine? And then you go, oh, okay, this, this, and this. Now we've got shared understanding. We can dialogue now in a way that has a compass setting that we've jointly created and we've gone our North Star, we've agreed at the beginning of the meeting. Now these are really important because sometimes the speaker will get stuck. They may become repetitive or they may go down a rabbit hole or they may go off on a complete tangent and this gives you beautiful permission to interrupt them and say, Geraldine, just want to check in. At the beginning of the meeting, we said a great meeting would be, duh, duh, duh. how are we going with that? And they'll quickly go, oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, we can leave that behind or can we just focus on that tangent, which is fine. doesn't matter what you do. And then finally, at about between the 70 and 80% mark in any of these meetings where you're in a relatively new relationship, it's not the first meeting, ask this question. Look, we're coming towards the end of the meeting and given what we discussed, how should we use the balance of our time? And this is a wonderful question because it unpicks level four, which we'll get to shortly, which is Mm. what's unsaid, 
It's also how we have shorter meetings because often what people will say is, you know what, I've got what I need. Let's call the meeting now. Have you got what you need? Yeah, I've got what I need. We call the meeting now. So, but you can't do that if your head's in a laptop. You can't do that if you're texting on your phone. You can't do that if you're occasionally looking at your connected watch for the text message from the VC. These things become difficult. So level one, just, just become present for you and for them. Your presence will change the way they dialogue and discuss anything with you. Level two, listen to the content. And the content is what you see, what you hear, and what you sense. Now, the first two are fairly obvious, so I'll spend a little bit of time on what you sense. But people often say to me, Oscar, I'm not, uh, how do I stop people being emotional in discussions with me? And I often say, is that about how comfortable you are with their emotion or is that about your emotion? Like, what's that about? And often they'll go, oh, look, I, you know, I just don't handle emotional discussions. And I say to them, if we just called emotion another data point, are you okay to listen when they're emotional? Because here's a newsflash, every human brings emotion to a conversation. Now, sometimes it's ebullient, energetic, and, and sometimes it's discouraged. Sometimes it's desolate. But there, you actually want to tune in more to the emotion because the emotion is a signal from a much deeper place about what matters to them. And if you're comfortable with your own emotions, you can sit in that space and let them explore their emotion in that moment. Now, this is not therapy. Please don't confuse that Mm. with therapy. This is just being present to their emotion. Professor Mark Brackett from Yale has written a wonderful book called Permission to Field. His entire work is around 96 distinct labels of emotions. Most people can name five to six emotions. Most people stick with sad, mad, glad, and bad. (laughs) It's pretty basic. But he, he has this wonderful book. He's got a wonderful app that basically says this is the emotion. Is it high energy? Is it positive? Is it low energy? Is it negative? And it's full quadrant model. But the beautiful thing about his model and the app is if this is your current emotion, do you want to stay with this emotion is the next question the app asks you. Now, sometimes you do want to stay with that emotion and sometimes not. And then it'll give you a handful of prescriptions to move forward there. So so my encouragement... Can I just ask a clarifying question there? Mm. Is that staying with the emotion in terms of feeling, labeling it? Do I want to stay with that label for it? Or is it about staying with the emotion in terms of what I'm feeling? Yeah. So it's given the context you're in, given that's your current emotion, is that emotion going to continue to be useful for you in that moment? So do you Mm -hmm. want that feeling to change? Or stay the same. Most people never go, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Do, do I want to move it? Because most people, this is a poor label and it's not doing Professor Brackett's work any justice, but people want to push away from the negative emotions as fast as possible. Whereas Brackett says there is an exploration you want to understand and start to become good with, I, I, I'm, I'm sad about this. Okay, well, 
what's that about? Because the 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 motion is transient um, unless you really get deeply into the work and then it's about the neural pathways and the brain chemistry and the message it's encoding into the neural pathways at that point. So Brackett's work is always asking, given where you are now emotionally and how you're feeling that, where do you want to go to or do you want to stay with it? And that's the beautiful thing because then it gives you two to three prescriptions. It might say, listen to some music or uh, go and take a walk or could be anything like that. So when it comes to our consciousness at level two, hear, see, and sense, it's a little build in there. Mm. Don't mm, try and master listening to somebody's emotion if you're just struggling with your concentration to listen to what they're saying. And then you can work on the, the body language. And Geraldine, a lot of people say to me, Oscar, I lose all the body language on video conferences and I say, you've got the biggest cheat opportunity in the world. You can just stare at their faces for an extended period of time and pick up a lot more body language than you could in real life. And just a simple little hack if you get distracted while you're listening for body language, again, just notice the colour of their eyes. And uh, the only reason I, I play this hack with people is why left eye is a slightly different shade of colour from my right eye. So I know the people who play this game well, as opposed to calling my eyes green. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll say goodbye to level two and we'll move up to mm-hmm. level three. A level three is about understanding the context, which is about first and foremost understanding the backstory and then understanding their backstory. Most people will come to a conversation and just describe which is where they're at right now on that idea. The powerful thing to set the context for them and for you is, could you just take me back to when you first noticed this, when you first had the insight, when you first discovered this? And all of a sudden, rather than describing a movie in its climactic scene, which is what they describe initially, and you have no idea who the characters are and how it fits together, they will take you back to the beginning Describe all the actors in their interaction. Describe the success and failures and the false paths they took. And now we're in a position to listen to your full context. And now we're ready to understand their place in the backstory, not just the backstory. Too many of us, again, because we don't understand the 125-900 rule, the difference between my speaking speed and thinking speed, we take what they say at face value for the very first thing they say. Now, we're not asking the backstory to help us out. We're asking the backstory to help them put themselves in a context that says, oh, wow, I actually have made a lot of progress. Oh, wow, I have adapted along this seven-year journey of my third PhD. (laughs) Oh, wow, Um, that was quite insightful of me to go and speak to somebody in Argentina about silicon interacting with silver or whatever the case may be if I'm in the field of chemistry. And too often we become advice monsters when they tell us the story for the first time and say, have you tried this? Have you tried that? And guess what? You haven't heard their backstory and they'll likely say I have. 
So a really lovely question to pose often is, they'll come and describe a problem to you and, and just simply ask, how long have you thought about this for? And just that simple question, how long have you thought about this for? Whether they think about and their answer is one day or one week or one month or one year or one decade, it provides a completely different context to the way you can continue the conversation with that person. And we'll say goodbye to level three and we move to level mm. four. Anything you want to explore at level three because there was, hmm. Yeah, no, it's just it's also a, a, um, I'm thinking that there's also the opportunity to, I guess you in you talking about the advice monster, we just assume we understand the context or we, you know, there's both probably not thinking that there is context to be explored and also possibly just thinking, you know, well, of course, you know, we understand the context and we think about that context also in the same way um, mm. if it's a situation that we're exploring together. So, yeah, yeah those um, explicit questions just to delve a little bit more deeply is great. So yeah. level four. Level four, we're listening for their unsaid. You know, where they're expressing 14% of what they think mm. the first time. Now, when somebody's reached mastery in their field, they can probably say what they mean with great eloquence. But that's rare. For, for most students, for most PhD candidates, for most staff you're working with, the first thing they say is the thing that's top of mind. And whether we send an email or write a thesis we never just write the first thing we think and press send or publish. We pause, we review, we reflect, we collaborate. We try and explore the idea from multiple dimensions. If you love playing games, then, yeah, just stick with a 14% of dialogue and you'll have longer meetings. It'll take longer to get stuff done. It'll be lower quality. The quality of the thinking won't be there. That, that, that's okay too. Yet for many of us, we don't know how to explore what's unsaid because we don't even know how to listen to what's said. So here's three phrases that you can practice to explore the unsaid. And uh, when I do this in seminars and workshops and I explain level four, I will have enough time for the rest of the meeting when people ask me questions and I will use these phrases and people will giggle, but they will also acknowledge that the questions I'm about to ask are really useful. If you use these questions well, please don't ask them sequentially. It won't be helpful. So master one of these three and the person's body posture will change. Their spines will become more erect their neck will go back and straighten on their spine. They will audibly sigh or they'll audibly exhale and they will pause and collect their thoughts. So you know you've asked this question well. Now, all these questions are really short, so they, sh they shan't be hard to remember. First one is, tell me more. A shorter version of that would be, say more. 
the really abbreviated version of that could be mm, just a simple nonverbal encourager. So that's the first phrase, tell me more. The next phrase is, what else? Now you're asking these questions so they can explore their thinking Mm. because what we want them to do is explore what they haven't expressed rather than they've definitely thought about it. They just haven't thought about how to express it. When you ask them what else, the short version of that is, hmm, and? And the shorter, the more potent it will be. Now, the third one, you have to use this one carefully. It's the shortest of all. And done well, it's extraordinarily powerful. And done poorly, it's incredibly intimidating. And here it is. Love it. Now, there's no coincidence that the word listen and silent share exactly the same letters. In the West, we have an awkward relationship with silence. We call it the pregnant pause, the awkward silence, the deafening silence. We have all kinds of language around it, and we feel compelled to fill the space. Now, in high-context cultures, Korea, Japan, China, the Indigenous communities of Australia, the Maori of the Polynesian Islands, the Inuit or the Eskimo of North America are all spectacular at their ability to hold silence. It's not uncommon for these cultures to hold silence for periods of minutes in groups, which causes extraordinary bonding and breakthrough as well. Now, that silence often will get the sigh from the person, and you will hear these phrases coming back at you when they start to say what they haven't said, to explore that unsaid, to explore those other 900 words that are stuck in their head. They will use phrases like, well, actually, now that I think about it, what I meant to say was, you know what's most important to me about this? And for those of you who aren't on the Zoom with Geraldine and I, she's furiously nodding her head, <laughs> giving me this very big nonverbal listening signal that she's experienced that. Now, I'm curious, Geraldine, if you've experienced that as the listener or the speaker or both. So it is something that I am very much aware of in the power of the pause in giving people space to think and reflect and go deeper. And it's also one of the things that's often hardest to do um, because, you know, there's this false sense sometimes I have of wanting to get to an outcome or, or finish which, you know, from what you've said is not is counterproductive because by giving people that space, we're more likely to finish quicker, get to the key point quicker. And I've also experienced the power of it uh, in reverse because my partner in the leadership, academic leadership development courses that we teach, Austin Rayner, is just such a powerful listener. And he really 
I always feel like he gives me so much space to think and mm. will take that pause, just, you know, like give some silence or even just take the pause before he starts speaking again. And that's that's a gift I really appreciate from him. And, yeah, because I know I can continue a thought and, and speak it out. Mm. At level four, we just want to diverge slightly because we've been talking about the context of the one-on-one conversation for mm. most of our dialogue. I want to just expand it to the context of a group discussion. Mm-hmm. And many hosts or actively participating uh, guests in a meeting uh, don't realise this plays out where we're not asking for the perspective of all participants in a meeting. And this came full circle for me, 2015, I'm in a boardroom facilitating a leadership team in a, in a complex environment. And we had, it was 12.35. And the reason I knew that is lunch was soon. And we started an exercise, which is simply describe this organization as an animal and explain why. And as we went around the room, there's 12 people in the room in this leadership team. We ran around the room and there was a, a very common theme emerging. Uh, a, a leopard, a cheetah, an osprey, an eagle. They all had in common speed. They all had in common um, the ability to overcome prey. And they were the apex predator of their environment. At one o'clock the CEO was tapping his pen kind of because lunch was due, right? And he was tapping his pen, looking at me and pointing to his watch. But we hadn't heard from Lynn. Lynn was from finance. And I just simply gestured with my hand. I didn't even ask. I didn't turn to make eye contact. And she said, thought it was obvious. And I think in that moment, she realized what she was about to say next would have a huge impact on the room. So she was careful to even express it. So I just twisted my hips and my shoulders towards her again, not making any eye contact with her and reaching out with both hands. She repeated, I thought it was obvious. I thought we were a snake. Now, in that moment, the tension in the room increased dramatically. And, Geraldine, if I was to ask you to describe the characteristics of a snake, Mm. what's going through your mind right now? There's sort of a sneakiness or a sliminess or a a visceral reaction on my part just thinking about a snake. Yeah. Yeah. And my assumption is everybody else isn't. Yeah, everybody else in the room probably caught it that way as well. Mm. Now I just took one step towards Lynn. She said, I thought we were a snake because we've forgotten to shed the skin of poor processes, of poor systems, and without us shedding our skin every season, we're not really looking after our clients. Now what you don't know about Lynn is she comes from a culture where a snake is completely different characteristic it represents many different characteristics to a western she comes from a culture 
based in China. And when she said that, you could feel the tension go out of the room and the dialogue completely changed. And people who had ignored her effectively for the three and a half hours preceding started to ask her questions about what systems, what processes, and she was absolutely surgical going through the processes that were holding back this organisation. Now, we did not eat lunch until 1.35, and the reason I knew that is because I had to take a note of the time, and nobody ate between 1 o'clock and 1.35 because they were completely engrossed in listening to difference rather than only listening to the similarities, which were osprey, eagles, cheetahs, leopards, and all this kind of stuff. So the unsaid often plays out by listening to the voices that aren't as ebullient, as energetic, and as effusive in a meeting. These are the voices we always hear from, and a great host or a really engaged participant can also ask and make sure that we're hearing from all present. Otherwise, Mm. why are they there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you taking away from Lynn's story? I think that's just a really powerful story about um, I, I liked the way you use silence there, you know, like the pause in a non-threatening way to give her the space to s- step up and say something. Um, I, I like, I'm certain if I was in a comic strip, that CEO had laser beam eyes trying to explode yeah. my head while I was pausing. But you're right, yeah. it, it, a great host will hold that space. Mm. And and it doesn't have to be the official host of the meeting. Any participant can ask someone else who hasn't spoken up. Yeah. And then finally, this systemic version of that question is to ask for the unsaid, for perspectives that aren't in the room. Well, what what does this mean for our work in collaboration with government? What does this mean with our work in collaborating with overseas? What does this work mean in a regulatory context? What does this work mean for patient health? Asking the unsaid questions that only can exist from outside the room. Mm. Quite often, if I'm in those groups, I will say, look, I know this sounds kind of wacky, but I've got a hat here and I need somebody to wear this hat. This hat is an external perspective of the regulator in the pharmaceutical industry is an example of one that I'm quite familiar with. Uh, equally, it could be a customer in a banking industry. And, and there will be a points in time that I pause the meeting and ask you to put this hat on and bring that perspective into the room because quite often that's the way to calibrate. Are we talking to ourselves mm. <laughs> and having a lovely chat or are we thinking about the systemic implications of this conversation and the wider impact? I often give people a little clock and I ask them to play the distant past or the emerging future, the future generations, or what can the past teach us as well? So we can play with systems thinking in a really different way. We'll say goodbye to level four and quickly finish up on level five. In our model, we know that 0.05% of our 20,000 population even have a language to describe level five. Very few people understand when you talk about how to listen for meaning. And I think the simplest way I can encapsulate this is in is a very simple story. Jennifer, uh, a stay-at-home mum who was trained as a primary school teacher, 
had her son, six years old, come home from school and she said, how was your day, honey? And he said, great, mummy. We learned math, so I learned the three is half of eight. Now, Jennifer has other kids running around at home and thought, did I mishear him? <laughs> I'll ask him the question again. Honey, could you say that again? And he said, mummy, I learned maths and I learned the three is half of eight. And she put her hand in her face and thought, what are they teaching kids at school these days? It's certainly changed since I was a primary school teacher. So she thought, what's a, what's a, what's a really powerful way I can teach him that three isn't half of eight. And she went and grabbed eight chocolate M&M buttons from the <laughs> kitchen cupboard and lined them up four by four on the kitchen table. And she picked up her son, Christopher, and put him and stood him on the kitchen table and said, honey, how many chocolate M&Ms in this row? And he went, one, two, three, four. And she said, what about on that side? And, she, and he goes, well, the soldiers are facing each other, so there's four on that side. And she said, well, you can see there's eight and that four is half of eight, not three. And with that, he leaps off the table. He grabs a piece of paper. He draws the figure eight on a piece of paper and then he folds it in half vertically. And then he folds it in half vertically the other way. He tears it in half and shows his mum. He says, mummy, C3 is half of eight. And in that moment, Jennifer realised her son experiences the world in a completely different way to the way she thought, and she mm. realised the three is half of eight. Now, if you fold that piece of paper horizontally, zero is half of eight as well. But most of us, because of our training, believe there's only one correct answer, four is half of eight, whether that's on the moon, Mars, or on Earth, four is half of eight, and everybody else is wrong. But see, what you don't know about Christopher is he graduated uh, very, very early from school and maths, and he's a world champion bug catcher in computer science now. Mm. And the reason is he sees patterns very differently in numbers compared to everybody else. And what you don't know about Christopher is he's not neurotypical. He's what you would call neurodiverse. And a lot of us, when we hear what somebody says, we think we know what they mean. But what we're really laying over that is our listening filters, our language, our educational and cultural assumptions. We need to have the curiosity to go, gee, I could be wrong. If zero is half of eight and three is half of eight and four is half of eight, where else are my assumptions around the world putting a barrier between me and my listening and helping the other person to express what they mean rather than what they say. It's not your job as the listener to always make sense of what they say. It's your job to help them make sense of what they think. And when you adopt the position that it's my job to help them think through this, listening becomes lighter, listening becomes quicker Meetings are much shorter and you have fewer meetings as well, mm. by the way, because mm. you're not coming back with that poor quality result from mm. the previous week. Yeah. So level five, a listening for meaning and we can kind of wave goodbye yeah. to the five-level model. And I can see what you meant at the beginning about the pyramid model and the importance of the, of these, the strength of that base because so much of what you said at every level points to the importance of curiosity 
and humility and just openness and the self-awareness of what are you bringing in that might be getting in the road in, in, at you know at each of those levels because there were different things i'm i'm very conscious of the time and that we've gone on and you have uh, a wonderful online quiz that i'm going to point people to because you also talk about the four villains of listening that mm. um i think that I, I'm sure I don't do it now. I've done this quiz and uh, I come, you know, come out nicely as interrupting and shrewd. Um, and you also talk about dramatic and loss. So there's, uh, do you want to say anything about those villains briefly? Just you know, because they're the things that can get in the road of listening. Uh, these, these listening villains came as a result of very bad hypothesis on my part. For four years, I wrote about what world-class listeners did and nobody read it, nobody engaged with it, nobody gave me any feedback and I read a beautiful book called called, uh, Scared, Stupid and Simple by Kieran um, Flanagan and Dan Gregory and they talked about how people experience the world through loss aversion uh, and negative frames. And what I did as a result then, I commissioned independent research and work with a third-party research organisation to start to ask some very basic questions about what gets in the way of people's listening and what frustrates people when other people aren't listening to them. So a lot of the academic literature will talk about listening through self-assessment and we know there's huge self-assessment bias when it comes to listening. In fact, uh, 83% 83% of people will rate themselves either above average or well above average when it comes to listening. And when the speakers rate, when the speakers rate, rate them, they say 12% of people are either above average or well above average when it comes to the listening. So we did a lot of cohort analysis. We did a lot of qualitative and quantitative research. We did cluster analysis. I know none of this. The market research company did it for me and we discovered these four uh, archetypes when it comes to listening barriers the dramatic listens too much to emotion and gets involved in a story that brings them to center stage the interrupting listener values time too much and tries to be too productive and like a quiz show contestant or pressing the buzzer too early anticipating the wrong question they often get the wrong answer damage the relationship the lost listeners just distracted either in external distractions, what we talked about earlier on with um, electronic devices, but they're also lost in their own thoughts. They're speculating where they could be or many other things that are distracting them in their own mind. And then finally, the shrewd villain is the problem-solving machine. Uh, they not only uh, know the answer to the problem the person's saying, but they've already anticipated the next three things that they're going to say as well. And what the speakers say about the shrewd listeners is, I know they're trying to fix me as opposed to trying to fix the issue. So when it comes to that, uh, you can discover which one of the villains are of listening. You can just visit listeningquiz.com and and find out a little bit more. Mm. Yeah. If there was one thing that you would like us to go away and just start trying out now as a first step towards becoming a, a deeper listener, what would that be? Listen for what's not said. Knowing you have the knowledge now that 900 words a minute are stuck in somebody's head, just practice those three phrases. Tell me more and what else and then 
pause and silence. Now, don't do all three in a row. <laughs> Pick one of those as your technique and and mm. master that. And mm. uh, you'll shorten your meetings. You'll be perceived as more helpful to the other person and you'll get up to four hours a week or back in your schedule. Great. And is there anything else that we haven't touched upon that you would just want to leave with us to finish with? I think just be comfortable in knowing that it's the simplest things that make us better listeners and you'll never be perfect. But in the next conversation, just ask yourself this question. Am I listening for similarities or am I listening for differences? And uh, play with that and think about in this moment, is similarities more helpful or is difference more helpful? Mm. Not for me, but for the outcome we agreed when we asked ourselves what would make this a great meeting. Mm. Well, this has been a great conversation, Oscar. Thank you so much for your time and generosity in sharing this with us. As I said, I will share with people the links and resources um, from oscartrimboli.com and uh, hopefully we will all develop better listening skills you know, for the impact of better science, really, and, and the impact on the world that we can have through better listening. So thank you for contributing to that. Thanks for listening. As so often happens with these recordings, we continue chatting after I'm supposedly stopped recording and uh, some interesting stuff comes up. And one of the things that we talked about here was about dealing with cultural differences. So I've added this in here as a special little bonus. The, the cultural differences are a big thing in academia because we often have multiple cultures, people from multiple different backgrounds working with us in our teams. And one of the themes that comes up in the leadership courses a lot is, you know, the the challenges of, of understanding how to work with people from different cultures. And I think there must be different ways of listening as well. But we can... I know that you have some podcasts and that that sort of touch upon some yeah, of these I was, issues. Yeah, I was and... going to say, funnily enough, it's the same as level one on our model. Whichever cross-cultural expert I interview, they all say the same thing. It's paradoxical and it's counterintuitive. Until you know your own culture, it's very difficult to interact yeah. because you don't know where the points of difference will be yeah. and where the points of similarities and most people never are either intellectually curious or culturally curious enough to go, what are the cultural nuances of my culture, mm. the, the home culture? Because once you know that, you can stand in a place to go, okay, well, I know my culture, mm. and now let's talk about, communicate about how we communicate and go, in our culture, this is how we talk about time. Yeah. In our culture, this is how we talk about the group versus the individual. In my culture, this is how we talk about problems versus solution. You know, this is how mm. we talk to somebody of a different hierarchy. And again, expressing how we communicate about how we communicate. Um, this is the big insight that I thought that would give you a whole bunch of really, you know, interesting 
tactical things to think about. But again, they said at the bottom of their pyramid is know your mm. culture, yeah. which is kind of listen to yourself yeah. in another in another yeah. expression. Yeah, oh, so important. So thank you. Pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Oscar and those five levels around listening to yourself for the content, the context, the unsaid and for meaning. And what a powerful gift we can give to one another if we really can learn to listen more deeply. Again, I'm curious about what might be the one thing you could go away and try out now in your next conversation. I know for me that since I chatted with Oscar, the communicate about communicating thing has been rolling around in my head. And I've also been trying to pay much more attention to level one, listening to myself and how I show up for people. And practically, this has meant that when someone comes into my office, for example, to chat, I'm sort of quicker to check in with myself about whether I'm actually interruptible. And if I'm not, I try to be clear straight away and say so and then try to set up another time where I can't, I will come and see them. And if I am interruptible, then I'm trying to get better at really giving people the full attention. So deliberately turning my body away from the keyboard and the screen and in doing so just sort of take a subtle deep breath just to try and refocus myself and so that I'm facing them and really giving them that full attention. And just a reminder about the listening villains that he talked about very briefly at the end. You can find out more about what villain you might be by taking the quiz on his site. And again, um, he has some very practical tips on his website and in his podcast and, and resources about what we can do to counter each of these if we're prone to them. So happy deep listening moving forward. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen. Bye.